space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. As I opened the book of Obadiah and began to prepare for this Sunday, that scene, more than any other, came into my mind. And it's not because Obadiah is a space alien. It is, quite frankly, because of those words from Captain James Tiberius Kirk taking the crew of the Starship Enterprise boldly where no one has gone before. And quite frankly, when it comes to the mission of this message today, the mission will be to take you someplace where very few of you, at least, have gone before. But I believe that these ancient words spoken through Obadiah will make that journey to some place you've never been before worthwhile. You see, I've never preached a sermon out of the book of Obadiah. In 20 years of ministry, I never have. I would venture to say that most of you have never heard a message preached from the book of Obadiah. Who has not heard a message preached from the book of Obadiah? Raise your hand. Wow. Who had no clue that the book of Obadiah existed? Okay, got a few of you willing to admit it. All right. Okay. You may not realize this, but there were 12 men in the Old Testament named Obadiah. And in fact, in the Old Testament times, it was maybe a, a fairly common name. For you see, the name meant the servant of God. What a wonderful name to have. The servant of God. Now, we know virtually nothing about the man Obadiah. We can assume as we read through these verses that since he mentions Mount Zion, that he is most likely from Judah and perhaps even from Jerusalem itself. But his prophecy, his prophecy was to the nation of Edom. Now, we've talked about Judah and Israel here over the course of these last few weeks, but we haven't said much about Edom. We're going to learn a little bit more about that shortly. As far as the timing of the book, because we've tried to kind of give you a, a place where these all fit in relation to the kings and what was going on in that time, there are two primary uh, ways to think about this as far as timing. One's a very early date, 848 to 841 possibly, when the Philistines and Arabs overran Jerusalem. That's one date that has been proposed. But one that I think is probably more likely would be 586 B.C., in 586 B.C., the Babylonian army overran Jerusalem and destroyed it and took many of its people away into captivity. That's probably the date that's going to be mo that most closely resembles what we see taking place in the verses here in Obadiah. Now, before we can understand the prophecy, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to give you a, a few lessons, one in geography, one in history. So put on your thinking cap, and let's try to get this. And, and there's a reason for this, because if you want to understand what's being said, the context of it is vitally important. And so we want to begin by looking a little bit in the geography area. And so I've got a map that we want to look at right here. You've seen this is a map of the Middle East, as you can see there. And you see Samaria and Judah. Down here in this circled area is the kingdom of Edom. If you can see the, the Dead Sea, you're going to see it somewhere a little bit south. 
It borders Moab. It borders Judah. It's not a very large kingdom. At some points, 20 to 30 miles wide and only 100 miles long. So it's not a, not a big place, but it was important. In fact, Edom was a fairly strong kingdom. Its strength came from two areas. The first is that there was a trade route that ran from Syria down to Egypt. This trade route was, um, since there weren't many ways to get north to south, a lot of times you'd have to go through Edom in order to do it. And so what they do is they set up toll booths along the way. And they charged taxes for the caravans that would come north and south. And so they became quite wealthy at certain periods of their existence simply by taxation. The other means was because of their terrain, the actual makeup of the nation itself. Now, there were some areas that were fertile and you could cultivate on them, but there were lots of areas that were primarily red sandstone cliffs. I mean, it was, it was not... Not a pretty picture. I mean, it's kind of like what you view when you, when you think of those pictures that beam back from Mars. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't real hospitable, but it was wonderful for defense because some of these cliffs would, would tower up 5,000 feet, and between them there would be these fairly narrow uh, passages, these, these, you couldn't really call them valleys, they're more like gullies that would run through there that had been carved through that. And it is said that the, the capital, which was Selah, which later became Petra, it is said that the capital of Edom could have been defended from an army with just a handful of men. That's how tough it was to invade Edom. And so they felt very secure because of their wealth. They felt very secure because of their location, their terrain. There was a lot of security in that. They also were known for their wisdom. And I, there are some other verses that you can go back and, and you can find that it's mentioned the wisdom of Edom. So evidently, they, they had an intellect. They had a wisdom. And, and that's a pretty good combination to have, wealth, security, and wisdom. And at this time in their lives, the Edomites had exactly that. There's your geography lesson. Let's move to history. The history lesson goes back even further. And I want you to just write this on your handout so you can look this up later. It'll be helpful. Genesis chapter 25 through chapter 32. Genesis 25 to 32. Because there you're going to find the, the history that's needed to understand what's going on here. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob. They were the twin sons of Isaac. We know that the lineage of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but what happened to Esau? Well, if we go back and we begin to read these stories that we find from Genesis 25 onward, we find out that um, these twin brothers even struggled in the womb, which was just a foretaste of things to come because they had a very difficult uh, family life. It was dysfunctional in many ways. They did not get along. We had uh, Edom, who it's kind of funny because the nation was later known for its wisdom. If you go back and you look at Esau, Esau made some really dumb decisions. He didn't exercise very much wisdom. And his brother Jacob was cunning and deceitful. That made for some interesting fireworks around Isaac's home. It was just a tough, tough way to live. 
Now, they eventually reconciled. After a period, they didn't see each other, didn't speak. They eventually reconciled. And, and Esau, at that point in, in uh, chapter 32, Esau uh, seems to hold no hard feelings towards his brother. But it says that Esau then left to go back and take his family back into the hill country of Seir. Remember, Seir is another name for Edom. Evidently, during this time that Jacob was away, Esau had picked up and moved to this region of Edom. Now, here's the deal. These were ancestral brothers. These nations were brother nations. And yet what we discover is that even though they should have had a kinship with one another, that rivalry that started in the womb continued even in their ancestors, generation after generation after generation, so that the descendants of Jacob didn't at all get along with the descendants of Esau. And we're actually going to see the the fruits of that played out in this book. This week, I want to encourage you to read the book of Obadiah. It is a heavy, burdensome task that I'm laying on you as you go page after page. Wait a minute. There are only 21 verses. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. You may not have made it through Amos, but you can make it through Obadiah this afternoon. won't take that long. And I just want to encourage you to read it so it puts everything back in its proper context. The message of Obadiah begins as a call for the nations to go to battle against Edom. You see, Edom felt secure. What this book tells us is that even though God had judged Judah and Israel, Edom was not out of his reach. Hiding in the rocks was not going to keep you from God's judgment. Now, what were the reasons that God was going to bring judgment against the kingdom of Edom. Well, we find at least part of the reason in verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights, you say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Your pride, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride was their problem. Now, what's the big deal about pride? Let's take a moment and look. Look a little bit at what the Bible has to say about the issue of pride. Pride was the root cause of the fall of Lucifer or Satan. Pride was what caused Satan to fall. We can read about this in in numerous places, but I want to draw your attention to two portions of Scripture because they're quite interesting. We're not going to put them on the screen. You may want to write these down so you can go back and look later. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15. In that, you'll find a reference to the king of Babylon and the judgment on him. The the second one is Ezekiel 28, verses 11 to 19. And there you'll find a similar judgment against the king of Tyre. Now, even though these are judgments pronounced on two earthly kings, as you read these, you're going to discover that there's something more here. That not only is the judgment being pronounced upon these kings, the judgment is also being pronounced on the one who is behind the kings pulling the strings. The one who was tempting them to do what they did. The one that was leading them astray, who was Satan himself. And I just want to take two snippets from these 
passages that I just gave you and show you what this judgment upon Satan looks like. In Isaiah 14, verses 13 to 14, it says, and again, referring to the king of Babylon, but behind him to Satan, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Here, this judgment upon Satan is because he was prideful and wanted to place himself above God. He was going to make himself like the most high. He was going to put himself on the throne. If we look in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17, we read, Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you down to earth and made you a spectacle, I made a spectacle of you before kings. It was pride that caused Satan to fall. Do you know it's also pride that caused Adam and Eve to fall? In the Garden of Eden, we read about this. In Genesis chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than all the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, The woman said, we may, we may eat from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Remember the judgment that was pronounced on Satan was because he wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to sit on the throne. And now Adam and Eve, faced with the same thing, the pride wells up in them that they can be in charge, that they can be on the throne, that they do not have to submit themselves to the will of God. As I was singing through the song, Jesus, All for Jesus, did you notice the line in there that says, Only in your will, I am free. Only in your will, I am free. It's when we want to live outside of his will and exercise that freedom to exalt ourselves to being boss, Lord of our own lives. And so it was pride that caused Satan to fall. It was pride that got in and and messed things up in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. We begin to see why God makes such a big deal about pride. You see, the root of pride is self-sufficiency. At the root of pride is self-sufficiency. Thomas Aquinas, a medieval theologian, wrote, Inordinate self-love is the cause of every sin. The root of pride is found to consist in man not being in some way subject to God and his rule. In other words, what pride says is, God, I don't need you. I can do this, my wisdom, my strength, my power, my intellect, they are enough. I can live this life just fine without you, God. Now, God had other charges against Edom, but they all found their root in pride. Pride in their wealth, pride in their wisdom, pride in their security, Now, don't get me wrong. This is not like this sense of 
satisfaction when you do a job well. We call that pride, but it's, it's not the same thing. When I considered this issue of pride and, and how, yes, we can feel good that we've done something well, but if we get to the point where it's basically God is an add-on, that I've kind of got this, but God's just kind of an appendage over here, then we've we kind of messed things up. We've drifted off. It is prob- The Edomites may have pray- prayed a prayer very similar to the one that we find Jimmy Stewart praying in the movie Shenandoah. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We work dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. I think the Edomites might have prayed that prayer. God, we've done it all ourselves. We've accomplished all this on our own. It's our power. It's our wisdom. It's our might. We did this, but we'll throw you a bone and say thanks anyway. Folks, I'm afraid that not only might the Edomites have prayed a prayer similar to that, but in reality, we may be living that way, that it is all up to us. It's up to me. It's my mind. It's my power. It's my strength. It's my ingenuity. It's the sweat of my brow. But when it came to pride, the pride of the nation of Edom, here's God's response. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. No matter how high you climb, no matter how well you do on your own, you need to understand you're not beyond my reach. Proverbs 16, 18 echoes this. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Now the pride in their hearts became reflected in their actions. And that's what happens with pride. It begins inside, but it acts outside. It, 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 it involves, it affects our lives, it infects, affects other people. Now, Jerusalem had been attacked, probably by the Babylonians. Their walls had been knocked down. Their people had been taken into exile. And based on that, we find beginning in verse 11 in Obadiah, how Edom responded. Now, remember, they're kin. They're they're brother nations. And what we find out, their response and, I, and there are a number of them. I'm going to run through these very quickly because there are seven responses that we see. First of all, they did nothing to help their brothers. They did nothing to help when the attacks came. Verse 11, on the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off wealth and foreigners entered his gates. You stood aloof. You stood on the outside looking in when your brothers were being attacked. Secondly, They gloated over Judah's misfortune. First part of verse 12. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune. This kind of plays itself out during basketball season in our house. We're North Carolina fans, and yes, um, you know, we're, we're pulling for them in the NCAA tournament, and everything's going well so far. They play Kentucky this afternoon, and, and we'll see how that works, uh, 
Dr. Jim Cox and I, we did not bet any money on this game. And you know what? He and I will handle it very good-naturedly. But there are some people who in this period of time, they will throw a party for a big-time team who is their, their opponent. They'll throw a party when they lose. I tell you, we ought to be happy to win, but we don't want to gloat over those who lose. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if it's superstition or not, but after I read through the book of Obadiah, after I read through the book of Obadiah, I'm having a hard time even being happy when Duke loses. So we'll see. I don't know. Maybe God's changing my heart. But you shouldn't gloat over your enemy. Now, this obviously goes far beyond basketball. This goes to our lives. This goes to, to as we look as a nation at other nations, but also as individuals. We shouldn't gloat over the misfortunes of others around us, even if they were living a lifestyle that asked for it. Third, they rejoiced over Judah's defeat. You should not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Fourth, they considered themselves better than their brothers and immune to God's judgment. You should not boast so much in the day of their trouble. Fifth, they showed up as mockers after the destruction. Verse 13, you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster. Sixth, they participated in the looting of the city. You should not seize their wealth in the day of their disaster, taking advantage of those who are hurting. And then finally, they joined in the killing and the exiling of the people of Jerusalem. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. Think about this. These were brother nations descended from the same father. And yet in the day of Judah's calamity, not only did they not help, Not only did they gloat over them in their time of destruction, not only did they go and try to harvest the leftovers that the Babylonians had left behind, they also waited for the stragglers, the ones who had escaped the exile, and either killed them or rounded them up and handed them back over to the Babylonians. This is a nation that felt secure who had pride in their wealth, pride in their wisdom, pride in their security, but that led them to belittle, condemn, and abuse their ancestral brothers. I want to remind you one more time. Pride is a prelude to destruction. Pride leads to destruction. If we succumb to the illusion that we are in control and that God is remanded to the passenger seat, then we're setting ourselves up for a fall. That's true whether we're talking about individuals or whether we're talking about a nation. I want to tell you, I am blessed. You are blessed to be Americans. We have privileges and blessings that other nations can't even dream of. In a sense, I can say very honestly, I'm proud to be an American. But I will not, in the midst of the suffering of other nations, I will not think that we're immune from it. That somehow, because we have money, 
and wisdom and security that we as Americans can't be touched by the judgment of God. I will not turn a blind eye to the godlessness and wickedness and evil in our own country and just sing at the top of my voice, God bless America, to try to drown out the cries of the innocents. Folks, here are a million and a half babies who are killed in the womb in the United States of America. Yes, I want God to bless us, but I also beg him to have mercy on us. And I'll never assume that we are beyond the reach of God's arm simply because there's a church on every corner. Israel fell, Judah fell, Edom fell. Never forget, God opposes the proud but gives grace, shows favor to the humble. In the midst of the blessings that we enjoy, we do so with humility, understanding that even though we plowed the ground, we planted the seed, we harvested the crops, even though we worked till we were bone tired, that everything that we have and all that we are ultimately comes from the hand of God. It is a blessing to us to be received, to be enjoyed, and to be shared. These ancient words spoken by Obadiah to a foreign nation, they speak to us. They speak to us individually and as a nation about the danger of pride. Let me share with you just three truths to try to sum this up this morning. And the first truth is that pride is a sinful attitude that we are wise enough, strong enough, and or secure enough that we do not need to rely on the Lord. Pride is an attitude, self-reliance, self-dependence, self-sufficiency. Secondly, a prideful attitude leads to judgmental and hurtful actions. It's not just going to be content to reside in our hearts. It's going to leak out. It leaks out in judgment. It leaks out in condemnation. It leads out in hypocritical hypocritical judgment of others. And third, the Lord will judge the nations. But he also offers the hope of deliverance. Words are not on the screen, but if you look in the last verses of Obadiah, Remember, here's a prophet from Judah, perhaps Jerusalem, who speaks this message of judgment against Edom, but he holds out this hope for God's people. Verse 21, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Kingdom will be the Lord's. The reason that the nation of Israel fell was the people stopped acknowledging God as king. The reason the nation of Judah fell is that the people stopped acknowledging God as king and felt that they could do it themselves. The reason that the nation of Edom fell is that the people did not acknowledge God as king and felt that they were secure in and of themselves. If the nation 
of the United States of America falls, it will be because we no longer acknowledge God as king. And if you in your own life stumble and fall, the root of it will be this, that you ceased to acknowledge God as king. For it's only in his will that I am free.